Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Who grows what we eat and how they grow it has radically changed in the past 25 years. In 1980, there were no genetically engineered food crops grown in the United States, yet by 2003, there were 100 million acres of genetically engineered food crops grown here. What happened? Why? And what effect these changes have on those of us who not only purchase the food we eat, but also grow our own food? This story is explained in a new documentary film called The Future of Food, produced and written by Deborah Coons Garcia of Lilly Films in Mill Valley, California. You may learn more about the future of food on the internet at www.futureoffood.com or by contacting Lilly Films by email at edit at L-I-L-Y-Films.com. I spoke with Deborah Coons Garcia in the studios of Radio Curious in late February 2004, just prior to the March 2004 California election, when a ballot initiative to prohibit the growing of genetically engineered foods was adopted by a vote of the people of Mendocino County, California. Deborah Coons Garcia, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you. Tell us about your film, The Future of Food. Well, it's a film we've been working on for about three years, and it seems to me that the future of food right now is up for grabs. There's two really different currents running through the food market right now, the food system, and one of them is huge industrial uh, agriculture that grows monocrops that's supported by lots of pesticides and uh, uniformity, and um, basically the same thing grown anywhere using all kinds of pesticides and fertilizers and insecticides to support that. And the other side of it is locally grown, often organic produce, and people know the farms where it's grown, and they buy them at you know food markets that they know or farmer's markets that they know and that sort of thing. So I think the future of food right now is there's kind of a, a dilemma as to whether industrial agriculture is going to crowd out uh, the more varied and local agriculture, which I think most people, when they really think about it, would rather have because it supports their local community and it's often healthier and fresher and tastes better. And so I think it, there's a there, we're heading towards uh, a future where I hope there's going to be enough variety for everyone to be happy and not just one crop that a big corporation owns. In your film, The Future of Food, you point out that in 1980 there were no genetically engineered food crops grown in the United States. And in 2003, there were 100 million acres of genetically engineered food grown in the United States. What transpired? What happened in those 23 years? Well, um, when they first started doing genetic engineering in the 70s, um, they there's a te- it's a technology, it's a cell invasion technology where they use bacteria and viruses to cross species barriers. And they first did it for uh, pharmaceuticals. And then in 1994, uh, a tomato called the Flavor Saver was the first thing allowed on the market. And then in 1996, the first uh, major crops hit the marketplace and were in the food system. And those were corn, cotton, soy, and canola. And they were able to genetically engineer these to be resistant to a 
uh, herbicide, Roundup. So if you sprayed Roundup on it, it wouldn't die. Or else they genetically engineered Bt, which is a natural bacteria that's an insecticide, was genetically engineered into the crop. So what happened was that they took these techniques of genetic engineering. Monsanto tried for 12 years to be able to genetically engineer things to be Roundup ready, and they finally were able to do that in 1996 and then get it through the system to get it out into the market. Well, let's talk about uh, Roundup Ready. For some of the people who might not know what Roundup is or what Roundup Ready means. Well, Roundup is um, Roundup is a chemical. It's an herbicide that was invented by Monsanto in the 70s that is actually less harmful than some of the other ones that are around, like, well, at that point, DDT and things like that. And it's, it's uh, less toxic than, than most of them. And so farmers, you know, everybody really liked it and home gardeners and things. And so what they did was they found a natural, uh, and it's patented by Monsanto, they found a natural uh, uh, soil bacteria that was resistant to Roundup and then genetically engineered that into certain crops. So when you sprayed Roundup on those crops, the crops wouldn't die because that bacteria that was is naturally resistant to Roundup would, would stop it from dying. So, But all of the seeds that were growing next to the crops would die. Well, everything else that's not ge genetically engineered to be Roundup ready would be killed by the Roundup. So farmers like that because instead of, you know, weeding the stuff using machines or however they would do it, they plant the seeds and then when they start sprouting and then the weeds start sprouting, they would spray Roundup on the field and everything but the crop would die. So they actually end up spraying more than they would if they weren't Roundup ready because, you know, they're spraying this Roundup on all the time. And another interesting thing is that uh, Monsanto's patent on Roundup was up in the year 2000. So it's, it's extremely successful and popular, and you know, it's been extremely lucrative for them. They tried to have these Roundup Ready crops so that they could extend their patent. And when people buy Roundup Ready seeds, they have to sign a contract that says they will only use Roundup on them. So essentially, it's a way for them to extend their patent. It seems like uh, Monsanto and the use of Roundup have gotten into the business of agriculture by limiting and precluding what people can do on their own land growing their food. I think the real problem with the, the technology of genetically engineered crops are that when the, the pollen from these plants go into other fields that aren't crops that are genetically engineered, it can cross with it. So people end up with these patented genes in their fields and don't want them there. And then Monsanto comes after them and demands payment because they're using their patented genetically engineered crops without paying for them or without even wanting them. Without having access or having purchased the license to grow them. Right. Which comes when you purchase the seeds. Right. So it's it's blown onto their land. They feel it's contaminated their crops. Monsanto feels that they're using their patented crops without their permission. They've sent out oh, nine or 10,000 letters to farmers saying you're growing our, our, our genetically patented crops without our permission. And then the farmers either have to pay them off or face a lawsuit. Your movie shows um, members of the Nelson family in North Dakota at the Nelson family farms. And they received one of these letters that you discuss from the Monsanto lawyers. Tell us about the Nelson story. Monsanto contacted him one year and said they'd like to come on their property and test to see if they were growing Roundup Ready uh, soy without uh, having paid for the, the seed. And they allowed them on their fields. They have 3,000 acres because they knew that they hadn't. So the, what Monsanto does is they come on the fields, they take a bunch of seeds, and they take it away, 
And then a year later, after all this crop has been taken out of the seed and sold and they no longer have access to it, Monsanto comes back uh, and files a lawsuit against them saying that they were growing their patented crop without permission. When the farmer can't prove that they weren't because all that seed has been sold. And they were really upset because they hadn't been. And I think they've sent out, well, estimates are they've sent out nine or 10,000 letters. And most farmers just pay to get out of it. And a few farmers have fought it. And the the Nelsons fought it. And then ultimately, Monsanto dropped the lawsuit against them. Do we know why? He can discuss how the lawsuit came about, but he's not allowed to discuss the settlement. So he entered into an agreement whereby Monsanto dropped the lawsuit. Yeah. And they have that uh, secrecy clause in the agreement right. where people uh, have to give up their First Amendment right to speak about whatever might be on their mind. Well, the people who, who get these letters from Monsanto threatening a lawsuit can pay, and part of the settlement is that they're not going to ever discuss that they even got a letter. So you don't really even know how many farmers have settled because they're not allowed to talk. Monsanto's allowed to talk if they want to, but the farmers aren't. The origin of this litigation comes from a United States Supreme Court case of Davis versus Chakabarti. Ananda Chakabarti was an engineer working with General Electric, and he genetically engineered an enzyme that ate oil, and he tried to get it patented, and he was refused the patent by the patent office. He and General Electric took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled five to four that they could patent this, which was the first case of someone patenting life. And after that point, um, they could patent genes. So they've been patenting seeds and genes and animals. There's a famous case called the Harvard mouse, which is a mouse that was bred to get cancer. And just a couple years ago, the Supreme Court said that that mouse could be patented. And interestingly enough, last year in Canada, the Canadian Supreme Court said, no, you can't patent the Harvard mouse. So there's a real conflict now between what Canada's Supreme Court thinks is right for the people, which should you be able to patent life? And so far they've said no. And the United States, where can you patent life? And they've said yes, because when you patent life, whether it's an animal or a plant, or they've patented human genes, anything that reproduces down the road years to come, that patent stays with it all the way through. And if it crossbreeds with something else, if it contains the gene, that's patented and that company owns the patent. And that is what was set out in the Davis versus Chakabarty case? Well, no, they just said that you can patent life. And then it's been extended, you know, then that was basically, they said you can patent life. So now they've said you can patent a gene. So the concept is that you can patent life and patent a gene, and the progeny of that which is patented can continue to become the property of the creator of that modified gene. Well, whoever owns the gene, once the gene is patented, who, whoever owns the gene owns that gene no matter where it goes. If that gene goes into a plant, they own the plant. If that gene goes into an animal, uh, they own the animal. That's the way it's played out. That's, the way th uh, that's what happened with this uh, Supreme Court decision. And that's what's happened in the 20 years since then. It's very interesting when you start looking at how patent law is being used now. And a lot of these big companies like Monsanto have patented thousands and thousands of seeds. You can't plant those seeds without signing a contract with them. And you actually don't buy the seed. You just lease the seed from them. And then after a year, you have to lease it again. You can't replant the seeds. We're reaching a point now where average farmer who doesn't want to go that route is is going to face some real problems in the future because if all they're allowed to do is buy patented seed, which they have to rebuy every year, then it puts them even in a, at a more economic disadvantage than 
if they could replant their own seeds. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with filmmaker Deborah Coons Garcia about her new movie called The Future of Food. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Deborah, in addition to the patented seeds, some of the seeds don't reproduce. They terminate at the growth of the plant. Well, there's a new technology that they're working on. They've been working on for a few years. It called it's it's been called the terminator technology and it's a suicide gene. Once the plant goes through one cycle, it's genetically engineered to commit suicide, so you can't replant it. And uh, the co-owner of this is the United States government. And when this this Terminator, it was called Terminator by action activist group named it Terminator, and so everybody's picked that up and they call it that, which is kind of you know kind of funny for them, but. When it first came out, a corn growers and all kinds of people said, no, 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 we don't want this. It's very dangerous. And so they said they were going to drop it. And then four days after 9-11, Syngenta filed a new patent for a new Terminator. So the fear about this is that if these Terminator genes outcross into wild plants or they crossbreed with other plants, I mean, these plants are all just going to die. They're not going to be any seeds from these plants. So how are they going to get seeds to plant if all the seeds pick up this genetically engineered element that aggressively promotes itself because that's what it's genetically engineered. So it's a real issue and it's a a really frightening issue for people who understand what the repercussions of this could be, especially in third world countries where people replant their seeds. That's the only way they can they can live. Well, the repercussions and the unintended consequences, what are some of those that you have learned in the process of making the future of food? Well, one of the things that people don't really realize is what genetic engineering is, it's it's a cell invasion technology. In order to cross species boundaries, which is what genetic engineering does, you take a bacteria and force it into a plant. To make something Roundup ready, you take a bacteria that's resistant to Roundup and you force it into a plant so that plant becomes Roundup ready. And it's actually a huge deal because um, that's you know, the reason why we have life on Earth is that species are able to maintain their integrity. And a plant is always a plant, and an animal is always an animal, and humans are humans, and, and, and that's why, you know, we're all able to evolve and coexist. But when you start breaking down these boundaries, you have to use um, bacteria and viruses and a, a, a gene that, that starts the process and, a, and another gene that ends it, and then you have to use this cauliflower mosaic virus to force this thing to create the proteins that, that it does in order to, to do the things it's supposed to do. So it's a really complex thing, and it's it's not something that's really been tested. They have this thing called the genetic cassette, which is how they create it. And the genetic cassette is, by its very nature, unstable because you have bacteria and viruses from all these different elements locked in together. And the way one scientist described it to me is, is when they, they try to create these is that they make tens of thousands of monsters, and they choose the one that doesn't look like a monster. And then that's the one that's their new thing. They duplicate that and it replicates itself and that becomes the new product. There's this problem with breaking down species barriers that could be very problematic in the future. They have no idea about how these things are going to function in, in the future. It's unpredictable what the results of this is going to be. And one of the really interesting things about it is when the Human Genome Project started years ago, they thought that one gene equaled one trait. They went through all the genes of humans and they thought they were, I think they thought they were going to find over 100,000. They only found 30,000. So what they've learned in the past 10 years is how much they don't know about genetics. They used to think one gene created one protein. 
that could have created one trait. And now they know that one gene, depending on its environment, depending on the genetic material around it, which they used to think was junk DNA, now they realize it actually has a purpose, it has a function, but they don't really know what. Now they know that one gene can create many different traits, depending on the influences around it. But when you say they look at the product or the end result that looks the best, they're not able to look at the gene combinations and the unintended combinations that they may not be able to see. Well, they don't know what's going to happen down the road. I mean, they know what they see in front of them right now, but when they let that out, like, for example, with with agricultural biotech, which is different than pharmaceutical biotech, because pharmaceutical biotech, they make the product and that's it. It's contained. It doesn't reproduce itself. With agricultural biotech, it's out there reproducing itself being affected by different elements and weather and all kinds of different things, and they don't really know what what's going to happen to it because these genes are jumping around. You know, this DNA is sort of mixed up there, and they're just not, they don't know what's going to happen to it. And that's um, what the people who are, who are wary of using biotech in this way, that's the reason why they have such a big concern is because it's not predictable. And they know now in the past few years because of the genetic research that's been going on, now they know how unpredictable it is, whereas 10 years ago they didn't realize that. What do you see the effect of this knowledge, the knowledge of the unpredictability that was not known 10 years ago? It's, it's interesting because the like gr- big grocery chains now are starting to say, you know, wait a minute, what are we doing here? They're starting to have second thoughts about going forward with this because if there's a problem with it, they're the ones that are going to have to pull everything off the shelves. So I think the consequences should be that people will become educated about what's going on and make a conscious choice whether they want to continue down this road or not. I, th- I hope that that's what happens because otherwise it's just going to take over and it'll be... In the process of education, that would require labeling of the food to say that this product contains a genetically modified uh, whatever. That's not done yet, is it? No, it's not. In the United States, uh, GMOs are not labeled, although they are labeled in the European Union and, and some other countries. But there's been a real, uh, you know, there's a real fight for the industry not to let things be labeled because uh, they're sure that if they're labeled, people a lot of people wouldn't buy them. And they've done study after study, I mean, very reputable studies by the Pew Trust and all kinds of people have shown that 85 to 90% of Americans want GMOs labeled. Most people don't even know they're eating them. They're eating them now in, in corn syrup, and they're eating them in soy lecithin, which are in a lot of processed foods. And a lot of Americans don't know that. And once they do know it, they've done all these studies with people, I mean, all over the country. When they find out they are eating these things already, they get really angry and they say, how did this happen? We didn't even know it. We want a choice. The companies don't want them labeled because if it turns out there are allergies and things like that, then they'll be liable. In England, they're labeled and actually people are avoid buying them, but, but they are labeled there. And the incidence in allergies to soy have increased several fold just since they've had genetically modified soy there. And since they have a national health system, they can track it. In America, we don't have a tracking system. But the reason why these corporations don't want this stuff labeled is because then we can track if there's allergies or or health problems with it, and then they'll be held liable. Whereas if they're not labeled, nobody's going to know what they're eating or what the effect of it is. Deborah, what uh, brought you to this issue to make the film The Future of Food? 
Well, I've always been interested in agriculture and food. And when I was in high school, I did an experiment. I grew up in Cincinnati. I did an experiment that was early genetic engineering. I I mutated these plants using a chemical called colchicine and radiation. And I, I won first prize in the Cincinnati Engineering Society Science Fair. I could see by mutating these things, I could see the normal one and then the polyploid one, which, which had mutated. And they were really different. The normal one was normal, and then the polyploid one was much bigger and thicker. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, this this is going to get very weird. You know, they're going to start messing with this. And that was even before they'd invented, that was back in the mid-60s. It was before they'd even invented genetic engineering. So I've always been interested in genetics because of that. You know, I kind of felt like I was an early little genetic scientist. Uh, so I've been interested in that. And then on the other hand, you know, I've, I've been um, really interested in health and diet. And, you know, I became a vegetarian when I was 20, although now I eat fish because I love salmon and I don't want to give that up. I'm very interested in organic food and the relationship between food and health and behavior and the issues around food and community and having control over the food versus having something that you don't even know what it is. And just our whole country, I think some of the studies they're doing now and some of these interesting books like Fatland or Fast Food Nation of what effect are changing our diets has had on health and intelligence and children's brains and all kinds of things. So, and I made a feature film 10 years ago that took place on a farm and we met a lot of organic farmers and regular farmers. And I just, I really admire the way that they, you know, they work so hard and provide food and it's, it's just, it's kind of an amazing thing and an amazing skill. It's part of our civilization. It's part of culture, it's agriculture. And I really wanted to make a film that honored that. And so the big thing when I decided to make the film three years ago, the obvious thing to do was genetically modified foods and genetically modified crops. That was like the big thing that was happening. How do you get access to the people who are interviewed in your film? How did you track them down? Well, you know, you find out who they are and who who are the people that that know about this and um, who's willing to speak out and who has information and, you know, who's like Percy Schmeiser in Canada. He was uh, sued by Monsanto, so he's spoken out. And we went to Mexico and we talked to people in the government about the, the contamination of their land-raised corn there with GMOs. So usually people want to talk. And so we just call them up and convince them that they should be interviewed by us and then we show up and... You know, I have to do all my research and read and have my list of questions, you know, all those kind of things. They're pretty eloquent. And I think especially around this issue, some of the people that know about it know how important it is and know that it's gone completely under the radar in terms of the mass public. They want to get that information out there and have people start thinking about it. Can I ask about your funding? Well, actually, it's pretty self-financed. I mean, we didn't go get anything from any companies or anything like that. It's just sort of uh, privately financed at this point. You talk a lot about Monsanto Corporation and what they do and don't do. Did you approach them so that they could be on your film and explain themselves? We did ask them for interviews, and they they didn't want to be interviewed. But what we did was we used um, some promotional material from that industry, and we used their own words. We take... um, clips from things that they use for promotion and quotes from them. So we feel that, you know, we have represented Monsanto's side, even though they wouldn't talk to us. And the other point is, is that we hear their point of view all the time. You know, the biotech industry, the ag biotech industry has, and they put like $50 million a year into promotion. So that's what people hear. And the organic farmers and the people that think maybe, you know, we should take another look at this. I mean, they have nothing. I mean, they don't have anything to spare. So 
already the information that's getting out there is is so biased that we just figured we have 90 minutes for people to explore this issue and I didn't really want to give up too much of it for them because that's what everybody hears already. You mentioned that the creation of the film was under the radar. Now that the film is almost done, how do you plan to distribute it? Well, it's so interesting because the film isn't actually done yet and I'm here in Mendocino County where you all are going to be voting on this. And a friend of mine had seen the film a couple months ago who's, who lives up here because he's been a farmer and um, I wanted to know what he thought. And then after this thing was going to be put on the ballot, he called me up and he said, this is exactly what we're voting up here on in Mendocino. Why don't you bring the film up here and well, let me take the film up and show it to people. And I thought, well, it's not done, you know, and everything. But he said, well, people need to know about this issue and this film really presents it beautifully and you know kind of has all these issues people weren't aware of so I said okay so we've been showing around Mendocino and we've gotten just really great response I mean it's amazing amazingly rewarding as a filmmaker because people are like beating down the door to see this film and it's not even done yet usually with independent films you know you you go to film festivals and you get it on tv and then maybe people see it this is kind of it's, it is an advocacy piece, and we're taking it right to the people first. And that's it's kind of a unique marketing thing, because what we're going to do is just show it to people. And I think we're just going to stand at the door, you know, when they walk out, and the, film, the DVD will cost 20 bucks, and we'll just take their 20 bucks and hand them the DVD, and they can take it home and look at it again or send it to their friends. Everybody wants to buy it. Everybody wants, you know, wants to be able to tell people about it. So... It's a, it's a very, it's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to make something for the people that they could have and would empower them to make choices about the direction that our whole food system is going. And it's actually turning out to be exactly that way. So it's really thrilling for me as a filmmaker. Tell us how someone can get a copy of the DVD of the film. Well, actually, it's not quite ready yet. It'll be ready in April. And they could check our website which is thefutureoffood.com, and get information about how they could order it. And there's also links up there with some of these sites, and there'll be some information. We're just building it now, but um, it's going to be more complete. It's called thefutureoffood.com, and that's where they can find out information about where to buy it. Deborah Coons-Garcia, writer and producer of The Future of Food, the to-be-released film. Thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close... Tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. The interesting book that I've read recently, and I can't remember the name of it, it's about women writers in San Francisco uh, in the West in the 1800s. And a lot of it is their diaries and letters because the history of the West is actually contained in the diaries and letters of the women who settled here. And, And some of them, a lot of them wrote anyway. They wrote stories. And it's just really interesting to see how they how eloquent they were you know and how they really captured their experience or their loneliness or their dreams in their everyday life um 150 years ago and it just is is amazing because you think well we're so civilized now but you look back at these women and the way that they were thinking and the things they did and how strong they were and how much they accomplished and just how complex their thoughts were and it's it's just fascinating so that's That's kind of what I've been reading. I've been reading about the past now. (laughs) Deborah Coons-Garcia, thanks very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me. Deborah Coons-Garcia is the writer and producer of the documentary film The Future of Food. You may learn more about The Future of Food on the Internet at www.futureoffood.com 
or by contacting Lily Films by email at edit at l-i-l-y-f-i-l-m-s dot com. The book that Deborah Coons Garcia recommends is Women's Diaries of the Westward Journey, edited by Lillian Schlissel. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.